welcome to this special episode of the Ajax podcast series. Tonight I'm joined by Jacob Sanders, who will be talking about his round-the-world expedition, his bikepacking expedition, which started in London and ended at the start of the global pandemic in Australia. It is truly inspirational. Strap yourself in and enjoy the listen. Welcome everyone. Thanks to Jacob Sanders for coming along and David Medhurst who's going to co-host with me today. So just an introduction to tonight's episode. Um, slightly different tonight. We're, we're not discussing a topic. We're, we've got a member, Jacob Sanders, who's come on, who's going to talk to us about some amazing experiences he's had um, over the last few years. I'm just going to do a little brief intro. So Jacob um, joined Ajax, um, when was it, at the start of the sort of COVID lockdown, and that was the end of your trip, yeah? Yeah, so I joined in July last of last year, so kind of in the midst of COVID, but the slight easing of lockdown, which allowed the TTs to start, which is how I kind of got into it. Amazing. While I'm there, I'll just jump in and say, uh, pleased to say to all the members that the club activity started, um, have a look at the Facebook page, there's lots of information there. Anyway, we digress. So, so Jacob um, joined the club, but prior to that, um, his cycling career started, if I'm right, with a trip from Land's End to John O'Groats. And then probably in the deep end again, in the continuation in the deep end, you went from Cardiff or London to Paris. Talk us through that, because that is a really odd, not odd, different, different <laughs> start to cycling. Yeah, so my understanding is that most people start cycling when they're quite young or they pick it up at some point and then they build up with training do some races and then perhaps go on, ex- on ex- some excursions um i was the opposite of that i kind of did other sports growing up um and on a phone call with my best mate a few years ago i said hey mate do you fancy cycling from john O'Groats to land's end and he said yeah why not so I had a little look at my calendar and I could only take um, enough days off work to be able to do the trip in seven days. So that was then kind of the the timeline that we had to stick to. So very, very quickly, I looked at getting a bike um, <laughs> from Cyclopedia um, and no kind of panniers or anything. I had it entirely in a backpack. So I had all my stuff for the week on a backpack um, and my f- best friend was going off traveling that summer. So we actually had had to do it in a March. And now Scotland in March is not famed for very nice weather, but despite that we got um, with, you know, green behind the ears and pure naivety, we got, took the bus up to Inverness overnight and then a couple of trains up to John O'Groats stayed the night there and yeah, just said, you know what, let's have some fun. So we started cycling down um, with John O'Groat uh, all the way to Land's End. Um, and that in itself was pretty eventful. Um, our bikes got stolen in Ultrium um, overnight between day four and five. So that kind of threw a bit of a spanner in the works, but we managed to get some friends' bikes driven up to us. Um, and then we finished it off but uh, like the the sights, the feeling of it, the just the pure freedom of just being on a bike, 
your knees hurt a bit, your bum hurts a bit, but it's second to none. So I definitely caught the bug there. Um, upon getting back, I then did a little bit of cycling, but certainly a very fair weather cycle to, you know, to the Vale and Barry and back. So, you know, 50k rides at most. Um, so, so let's just get this right. So your first real experience, and you bought a road bike to do this, yeah? Your first yes. real experience of sort of cycling was pretty much doing, what is Land's End John O'Groats? Uh, how many miles is that? A thousand kilometres, maybe? 959, yeah, something like that. There's over 100k a day. It's jumping on a bike, riding 100k a day, and then having your bike nicked halfway through. Um, yeah, so I... With a rucksack. With a rucksack. <laughs> so I I'd cycled to training um i used to do rowing for cardiff you know i used to cycle to training there but that was the extent really and maybe some recovery rides so but yeah probably cycling uh so it's it's a town from okay. so it was maybe five okay. kilometers at the most i'm 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 only joking wow okay so, <laughs> but uh, so- i i i did more cycling distance on the first day than i did in prep for it because for most people, that would be pretty much um, an about turn after day one and realise they're probably bitten up a bit more than they can chew. But you, you, you managed that. You got down to John O'Groats, and then, which is just amazing. And I'm, I'm not skipping over this because there's a bigger story coming. <laughs> I think that's, that's the one we want to focus on. So, so how then after that experience did you then say, do you know what? I want to cycle to Paris. So talk us through that. Talk us through the decision and then the actual implementation of it because that's for it you know I'm, I'm most people do this as a once in a lifetime those two things you know um and you seem to have just you know taken them off like sort of sweeties yeah i i think that there is definitely something to be said for just pure just pure bliss naivety just going for it and if things go wrong, they go wrong. If you can't find a hotel to stay in Inverness, then eventually you find one. Like you, you just adapt and you just roll with the punches. You just go with it. So the following year, um, so this, so John O'Groats Land's End was March 2016. Um, London to Paris in 24 hours was May 2017. So the following year, again, I rang up my best mate and I said, Made you fancy cycling to Paris in 24 hours. I don't know where I got the idea from. I probably saw it on an article or in the news or something. Um, and with about two or three weeks prep, um, we decided to do it on one of the bank holidays. Um, I think it was the second bank holiday in May. And same thing again, just rocked up at London um, about 3 p.m. We'd, we'd booked our, um, our ferry over. And we just cycled down and you know it's it's not a short trip well the the original plan was to do london to paris and back in 48 hours i'd done some maths and you could get a ferry back um overnight and it would all work out quite well um so there was a little bit of planning but yeah it was just a pure thing of right well these these are the timings just got to cycle it um we Accidentally went on some seriously main roads um, where cars were overtaking us at 70 miles an hour. Um, but yeah, you know, you just get on with it, really. Um, and then we ended up in Paris in 22 hours or so. 
Um, but it was a real heat wave. It was mid thirties. We were shock underprepared. Um, so we just, we decided to stay there the night and just draw a line under it, go around Paris that day and then, um, you know, get the Eurostar back. So, yeah, I, th I think there's definitely something to be said for just pure, you know, you know, what, what's the worst that can happen and just going for it. It doesn't matter if you're underprepared, if you are a bit resourceful and can adapt, then yeah, you can do anything. But it was, but it was true, like Northern France on like a dewy Sunday morning as the sun rises was stunning. Just absolutely stunning. What strikes me is that you've got this amazing um, capacity to, to to see adversity as a sort of catalyst to to keep plodding on. Most people would would see it as an opportunity to um, about turn or or duck into <laughs> to some posh hotel and just sort of rethink it. But okay, so so again, that's an amazing achievement itself. So so what what happened then? <laughs> So you've done these two monstrous things. Most people would probably say, do you know what? They're sort of two life uh, life experiences I've ticked off. They might then think about doing other things. And then you embark on. So talk, talk us through what happened. You came back to Cardiff. Yes. Um, and then then what happened? Um, so, yeah, this was summer 2017. Um, and I by like November, December 2018, um, I wasn't super happy at work, like it was fine, but I kind of thought, ah, oh, kind of want a bit of a change. Um, and I, again, I don't know where I got the ideas from. It was perhaps just something that I just picked up or I'd seen a glimpse of something online or something, but it, you know, it, it could have been uh, Mark Beaumont doing Around the World in 80 Days. It could have been Michael with um, his travels. I don't know where it came from, but once, the ideas in the back of your mind it just eats away at you and thinks ah oh, that that'd be good fun um so yeah christmas 2018 um i made the decision yeah i'm gonna quit my job in the summer and cycle around the world um and the timings worked out quite well um i was rowing for my uh cardiff uni alumni we were racing at heli regatta which finished the first weekend of july so in my mind, I thought, oh, I'm going to be perfectly fit from that. I'll quit my job so that I can do that and then set off in July. I'm going to be touring around Europe in the summer. Um, when it starts to get cold, I'll migrate somewhere warm and just constantly just chase some nice weather. Because um, I think I was ready to do a bit of traveling, but I didn't want to do something where you just, you know, you've got a backpack, you get on buses, you get from point A to point B to point C without really seeing the entire country. And I think that's one of the benefits of having done John O'Groats Land's End, London's Paris, is that you see that there are that there's far more to an area than just the big locations. You've got everything in between. And also it's an adventure, it's a story, it's, it's an experience every single day on John O'Groats Land's End, each day was completely different to the previous one. Completely di different landscapes, different weather. Um, and I thought, you know what, that would be really cool just to go around the world and just see what is out there. 
So the six, seven months go by, I quit my job, race at Henley, then it's right, okay, cool. It's time for me to actually go. Um, in terms of preparation, again, I didn't do too much. Um, I Sounds like there's a theme coming in. There's a theme developing yeah. here. <laughs> I've I done a fair bit of research into kit. So um, I, I had what I thought would be sufficient kit. So I had a tent, I had bike packing bags, like just the, the Apigura ones. Um, I'd, you know, I'd bought some uh, four season wheels. They were more durable. I'd bought continental four season tires. I thought, oh, I'm really being, I'm being really, you know, um, careful with planning here. You know, I'm getting good tires that will suit me in all conditions. Um, and yeah, just kind of packed up all my stuff, got to Buckingham Palace and on the 21st of July, I think it was, set off. Um, the first day was... So that's full, you were going fully solo, yeah? Fully solo, self-supported by myself. And um, you had a, did you have a rough route? A rough route? or? So I, I could trace the route on a map where I wanted to go. But in terms of actual roads, um, I left it to either planning on the morning or planning the day before. Um, such that, you know, you're not constrained by having already made bookings somewhere and you can adapt and you can modify your plan based off recommendations, based off weather, based off your, your gut feeling and how you feel. So are you, are you planning a map on a Garmin or just literally a paper map? So I, I bought a Wahoo. So um, I had the all like the world's maps on there. And then every morning I would just decide where I wanted to go plot it on um, Kamut, upload it to my Wahoo and just go. Um, wasn't too much forethought. And I think that's that's a real key thing. And, you know, you can do it when you cycle around Cardiff. You don't have to spend ages planning a route. You, you, you can just pick somewhere. It suggests a route. You can modify it if you so wish, but you can just roll with it. And if you want to divert from your route, you do it. And then you got it where you want to go back to. Um, so, you, so you set off from Buckingham Palace in July, yeah, summer UK yes. time. What was, uh, and were you were you camping? So I had a tent. Um, I had sleeping bag and all kind of sleeping gear. Um, but the thing that I realised on the first night when I reached Dover was that campsites were actually quite expensive. So I'd done a bit of reading on wild camping as well. But I needed to pluck up a bit of courage first before doing that because I didn't really know how legal it was because apparently in some places, countries like Germany, it's actually legal. Um, so and I wasn't really sure how I would deal with being confronted. Um, yeah, I, I, I know in the UK, it's pretty much in the UK, someone owns the land. So in theory, yeah. you have to have permission of the landowner to, to an extent. Yeah, but I, I think it does give you a great freedom. Um, just being able to set up your tent anywhere. And the rule that I kind of went by was that if you if you pitched your tent when it was dark and you left before it was light, no one's going to bother you. Because chances are, A, no one's going to see you in the first place, and B, if it's late at night, they'll just let you be. Um, as, long, as long as there's no Eastern European bears hanging around, or, or, or they, might, they might get a bit miffed, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. 
unless there's that. Uh, which thank, thankfully, I didn't get any issues from bears. Uh, dogs, that's a slightly different issue, okay. but uh, thankfully no bears. So, so tra- talk us through your route from the channel mm. into Europe. Where did you sort of head? What was the route? So the plan, so I hopped over into France. Um, I went to Amsterdam. I then essentially headed south to Switzerland, uh, east to Austria, um, south to Croatia, and then kind of worked my way across to Istanbul. Um, obviously, there are, you know, deviated a lot more than that, but that's just the general kind of if you could plot it in your head. Because, um, yeah, I, I wanted to get to Istanbul and then across to Azerbaijan in Baku, but uh, didn't manage to make that part of the trip. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of aimed to head south, southeast across Europe. And were, um, you, were you sort of, I, I guess, I, I guess my, what's really fascinating me is how you manage the, the sort of isolation Bit, you know and did you have really low points it must have been loads of high points but did, or did you set up yourself daily goals or did you just kind of go do you know what let's just see how I go and see where I end up I didn't put any pressure on myself um if I was feeling tired I'd shorten it if I was feeling good I'd, I'd lengthen it um I didn't have any low points in Europe I think partially because most places speak English as a second language, um, you can get 4G everywhere without any extra charge in most of the Schengen countries. Um, so you're only a WhatsApp away from your friends. You know, I'd still spend an hour or two a day on social media. So you you never really feel that out of kilter with the world. Yeah, disconnected, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, yeah, you, you, you could always FaceTime someone, you could always phone. So I never really felt low at all. Um, the isolation, yeah, you are cycling by yourself and you are sleeping by yourself, but you never really feel that alone. It's because you're on an adventure. You know, you're not worried about being by yourself. I think there's an element of would it have been a better experience if someone was with me and I could share it with them, possibly. But not having someone didn't detract from the experience. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. That takes a real, I guess, mindset and you've really articulated that well. Um, Yeah, it's made me really think. So so you headed through Europe. Yes. Did you get to Istanbul? Uh, Almost. Um, talk I, us about talk us talk us through the almost then. Yeah, so I, I I I headed through kind of like the uh, Croatia, Albania, Montenegro, Macedonia, which I think is just the most stunning part of Europe. Um, the only difficulty with it is that it's quite tricky to get there with flights, but in terms of landscape, in terms of just the roads, the culture, the food, the people, unbelievable. It was, you know, you know, I, I could talk about my time in the in the Alps, the Dolomites, which was stunning, but 
those countries there were just unbelievable. So I was riding a real high off those. Um, I made it into Greece, uh, was going east across Greece on the coast. Uh, and then one day I just wake up in hostel. Um, I don't know where I am. Wow. I don't know what on earth has happened. So you get I up remember. in the morning, you, you, you don't know what happened. So what month was this? So this was September. I think September the 7th, perhaps. Oh, so you covered quite, uh, a bit of, uh, quite a bit of ground since July to September. Yeah, I, yeah I'd, I'd done a couple of thousand miles um, in those, you know, seven weeks or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, I remember setting off in the morning, stopping off somewhere for lunch, um, and then nothing. And I just remember waking up to someone putting stitches in my forehead. I was just on a hospital bed. <laughs> so um, some, not loving, but something like you see in a TV program, you know? Yeah, it, it is strange. I've never had, I've played a lot of rugby, but I've never had a concussion. So, and I've never been knocked out. So it was a completely brand new, bizarre experience. Just waking up in hospital bed, no idea what country I was in, because I was still quite dazed. I wasn't sure whether I was in Greece, in Turkey, in Macedonia, I didn't really know where I was. Um, and then I then get wheeled through to my hospital room. I remember, I remember pulling over a nurse and asking, what country am I in? And she goes, Greece. And I go, what happened? And she says, I, I don't know. Um, and then I was really dozy. So for the entire rest of the afternoon, I was dozing in and out of sleep. Um, I remember kind of looking down, I could move all my fingers, I could move all my toes. I was, you know, I didn't have any bone breaks. Um, all the skin was missing off the palm of both my hands. I had a ton of skin missing from my arm um, and my leg. Um, I had broken one of my front teeth in half. Um, I had, yeah, the bunch of stitches in the foreheads, but besides that, I had no idea. I didn't have my phone. I didn't have any of my clothes. Um, I was just purely in a gown and nothing else. Um, oh, wow, that's like, it's like everyone's worst nightmare, this, isn't it? You know, you've got yeah. this adventure and then suddenly you're in that, that is that true isolation and that I, yeah. I don't know where to turn or what to do. So, so yeah, tell us, tell us about that. How... So I managed to locate someone who spoke good English and then I managed to get hold of my phone, went onto Google Maps, found out where I was. Um, I rang my mum, she didn't pick up, rang my dad, he did pick up, um, and then kind of said, dad, I'm all right, I'm in hospital, don't know what happened, um, here's the location of where I am, but I, I don't know anything, um, you know, no, nothing's broken, yeah, just didn't know, so eventually kind of, um, the the, the story kind of unraveled a little bit. So the person who picked me up um, came in and he's, he didn't speak very good English, but he essentially said, you hailed me down. Um, I put my bike in the back of his car and he drove me to hospital. Wow. Um, and kind of it transpired that there was no impact with the car because the bike was fine besides a puncture um all my stuff was there i didn't really have a scratch on my phone 
I would I, I came out of it really lucky, but I still to this day have no real idea what happened. Um, so I kind of waited a day or two to recover. Um, my mum was supposed to fly out to meet me in Istanbul. So she flew out to Istanbul as planned, and then flew to Greece to come and find me. Um, and yeah, I got discharged pretty much as she arrived. Um, the police had completely searched all my things, my bike, um, all my stuff was in a big bag brought together. Um, and then, yeah, they left it at the hospital for me. So I had all my stuff. Um, <laughs> so that, that's just a crazy experience, isn't it? So you've gone from blacking out, waking up in a hospital to then having a bag full of stuff. And yeah, amazing. And, and most people would have gone, that's it, game over. So the, the, the only thing I was missing was half a front tooth and an AirPod. So I had absolutely everything. Um, there was a big crack in my helmet. They'd cut open my um, my bib shorts and my jersey, and there was just there was blood all over them. Um, I had maybe like two dozen stitches in my forehead. Um, so I must have, you know, and the, the impact was front right. So it was quite quite severe, I think, but... I don't really, you know, I, I can't speak for how bad it actually was. Um, they said they did some brain scans and it was all fine. No cracked skull or anything. Um, so my mum then booked a hotel in the town that I was in, stayed the night. Um, next morning we got a bus to Istanbul uh, where we had a hotel booked and then just stayed there for a couple of days. Um, and then it was a case of, okay, do I fly home or do I stay here and then carry on? Um, I, can I, I can imagine what your mum wanted you to do. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I ended up going with that purely on the basis that the amount of care and attention that my uh, skin needed to recover from the missing skin uh, was quite a lot. Um, it needed dressings to be kind of redressed every day. Um, so much so that, you know, we kind of went over and above what was required. So there's no evidence of any skin missing whatsoever. Just a very small scar on my forehead. Um, so and then I was at home. I so, got so you went home. So that's kind of like, that's a big adventure in itself. And then you've, <laughs> you've gone home. Yes. Um, back to the UK and getting your dressing sorted. And how long was that recovery? Um, it took me a few weeks to maybe two or three weeks to stop being really tired. I think that it takes a while for your brain to recover from something like that. So even, you know, a week or two after I was still sleeping a long time at night, having naps, feeling lethargic. Um, so once that kind of stopped, um, and my wounds got better, I then got out on the bike, um, just kind of get over the hump, um, you know, try to not be scared. And yeah, within five minutes, I was back to normal. Um, yeah, I don't have any I'm, fear whatsoever. I'm sensing there's a part two coming up, knowing you and having seen your experience from Land's End, John O'Groats, and then the French experience. Most people would have definitely hung up the bike and, and, um, and had, was that, that sort of Christmas time? So this was, so I, I crashed 6th or 7th of September. 
So by the end of September, I was kind of back to being fighting fit. Um, and so I then made a plan to fly out to India um, mid-October because my original plan was to go across to Baku, get a ferry across the sea and then go through um, a lot of the stands and essentially go through that part. But it would have been far, far too cold at that point in time Yeah, uh, for me to be able to do it comfortably. So so, so I think, how did that conversation go with your parents then? <laughs> um, it went about as well as the initial conversation I had with my mum about wanting to cycle across the world. So um, it didn't go any worse than that. I, okay. I think that they were a bit apprehensive, but they kind of saw that my mind was made up and it was going to happen. They were either going to be, you know, with me or against me and how much I'd resent them if they forbid me to, forbid me to do it. So they got I mean, I'm a true admiration because most people would have hung their boots up early doors. Okay, so here we go. This is like part two. This is just, this is, yeah. You should be making a film out of this. This shouldn't be a podcast. This should be some kind of documentary. Anyway, <laughs> so here we go. Part two. So you, you've, you've had that conversation with your parents. You take a bike on a flight to India. Yes. So I had the bike checked out at a bike shop and there weren't any cracks um, in it whatsoever. Um, they, so, yeah, I got to Heathrow, packed the bike up and flew to Delhi. Um, I, they were trying to rip me off for a taxi to the hotel that I wanted to stay at. So I ended up putting my bike together and packing all my stuff up in a car park in Delhi airport and then cycled to my hotel. Um, I didn't realize that India drive on the same side of the road that the UK do. So, <laughs> so it's almost like a, a, an early end, was it? Yeah. Put so it kind of, you know, prior to this, in my mind, I thought the UK is the only country in the world that drives on the left. Uh, perhaps a little bit naive to that. Um, so leaving the airport, it was a one-way street out. So I got on the right-hand side. And then suddenly, when it got to two lanes, I was faced with oncoming traffic. Um, but I managed to make it to my hotel unscathed, despite two packs of stray dogs chasing after me, which become a common theme across um, India. Um, and then I then cycled. Yeah, so my... My first day was a 200 kilometer cycle in a brand new country, in a brand new continent to Agra, which is where the Taj Mahal is. So that's not an insignificant day in itself. Um, and I think you, you can always cycle further than you think you can. And there's no, nothing to stop you from stopping and having lunch or having a snack or having a water break. You know, you can just get back on and just keep plodding along. Um, so I then got to Agra, which was the most manic city I've been to. There were tuk-tuks, motorbikes, cars, just cutting each other up. Um, and then I was in Agra. The next morning I went to Taj Mahal and my wallet got stolen. So no. that was a bit of a, a headache and I had all, all my cards in. So I then had to stay in Agra for two weeks whilst a new card got posted out to me. Um, 
you know, that in itself could have been a reason to come home. Um, but I then, you know, plod, plodded on, went up to Nepal, um, and then Nepal was stunning. I, I, I feel like I'm not doing any of these countries that I'm going through justice, because like it's, you know, I could spend a couple of minutes on each country talking about just how magnificent it was, but Nepal is just stunning. Unbelievably hilly, horrific roads in places, um, but just a stunning, stunning place. Um, seeing um, the, you know, the Himalayas in the distance. I think mm. Mount Everest was about 80 miles away and you could just see it in the distance. Absolutely immense. Um, but then because I had the two week stay in Agra, I had visa issues. I wouldn't, wasn't really able to get back into India and get across to Myanmar or like Burma in time. So I was essentially stuck in Nepal. And again, this could have been a point where I decided, you know what, this, I've got to come home. Yeah, you're, running, uh, you're going to run out of luck. Yeah. So the, but the option I decided on was um, taking a bus back to Kathmandu and flying to Myanmar in uh, Man uh, Mandalay. Um, on that flight, um, my bike got damaged. The care handlers didn't do a very good job. And I think that the um, skewer punctured a hole in the seat tube. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, my, my bike was a, it was a secondhand carbon fiber Bianchi. And carbon fiber repair isn't really something that's done over in Southeast Asia, I don't think. So I was pretty yeah, I can, much stuck. I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I had a call with the guy who runs the bike shop near my parents' house. And he said, out of all the places to get um, you know, damage, that's the best. Because te technically, you could still ride on it. And it wouldn't be, it's, it's not really load bearing. Um, but in my mind, I thought, if I'm going to be going down some descents at 50, 60 k's an hour, I don't really want to have any doubt in my mind about the seat tube just suddenly just yeah. snapped. Um, so I decided to, you know, again, that's another point at which I could have turned home. Um, but I decided to post the bike home. I managed to find the only. So I'm I'm six foot three, and in South Southeast Asia, people are generally a little bit shorter than what they are in Europe. So there were a couple of bike shops in Mandalay which did kind of road bikes. But the biggest size frame they did was a 54, which isn't really <laughs> big enough. Um, the other option were mountain bikes, but even still, they were far, far too small. But I, I bumped into someone. I managed to get a hold of what must be the only 61 centimeter carbon fiber frame like bike like in the entire country. Um, so I got that posted up from the city that it was in up to where I was. Um, and then carried on. So I went oh, around. <laughs> I uh, went around Myanmar, which is by far and away just the most unbelievable country you'll ever go to. And I know there's a lot of political trouble there at the moment, and it's heartbreaking to see because they are just the nicest and kindest people. Um, you know, I I don't know whether the, in a couple of years we'll even be able to go there, but if if you know. 
that's that that's the place that I would return to because it's amazing. Like, so that's your sort of highlight. Yes. Country. Yeah. So it's I'm more of a of a landscape kind of guy than a building guy. So the Taj Mahal was fantastic, but I'm far more excited by things like the Himalayas. Um, but Myanmar has both. It has enormous pagodas, which is essentially it's big golden cones um, that just, you know, 100 meters high on top of a mountain. Um, just stunning, stunning buildings. The landscapes, you had places that were pan flat. You had in, an incredible mountain range going down the spine of the country that was absolutely savage to cycle across. Um, yeah, and just that the people are just kind beyond measure. Um, I was cycling down one road. Um, I stopped off at this guy's um, house, which is it was more like a shed in terms of its proportions and materials. And he kind of sold food and drink out the front of it. So I bought a can of Coke, a bottle of water, some crisps and a, some snacks. And um, it must have amounted to two pounds, maybe. Um, and then kind of I finished that and he then gave me another can of Coke, he gave me another pack of crisps and more water. I think he ended up giving me more than I'd originally bought in addition to what I bought just completely for free and he wouldn't take any money. Um, and then an hour later after I, you know, I reached the police checkpoint and they essentially said, sorry, there's military fighting here. You, you can't come through. I, I've been warned that this was the case in Myanmar because there are troubles between, um, certain groups. Um, but I thought, okay, well, this is the first time that it's happened. Not two seconds later, a lorry comes uh, the other way. Um, and he just, without even asking, he pulls over, asks, you know, do you want to get, get in the back? And so I jump in the back of this lorry and he takes me back the 120K or whatever it was that I'd cycled that day back to the um, hotel that I was staying at the night before. Wow. You know, just, and, and, and again, you know, I tried to give him some money and all he asked for was a photo. You know, it's just um, unbelievable. So I managed to go around me, Myanmar. Um, I had to kind of rush out the country because of visa issues again into Thailand. Uh, spent New uh, Christmas Day in Thailand. Went across Thailand racing to get to Laos for New Year's Eve. Um, and again, like these, these were stunning, stunning countries that, you know, I wish I could go into more, but, you know, these were, some of these days were big days. Yeah, sounds like, like it. Um, big, big efforts. Like 200 kilometers with three, 4,000 meters worth of climbing. I think one of them was like, they were, they were significant, but when it's something that you do every day, you, it, you, you just build up a tolerance and just the the whole thing of just plodding on, just keeping going, allowing yourself to stop, pull over, hydrate, have some food, and you just keep on going. And it really is amazing just how much the body can just endure and just keep on going. Um, Definitely seem to have the mindset for that. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. So, so you're down in Thailand, yeah? Yeah, so I was in 
Thailand, went up into Laos, and then got into Vietnam. Um, I do this thing called the Hajang Loop, which is what a lot of um, travellers do on mopeds. It's a tour of the mountains in northern Vietnam. Um, absolutely stunning. Like it's kind of one of the go-to things to do in Vietnam. But I was doing it on a bike, um, and it's 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 probably a I don't know, a 10 kilogram frame because it's got eight speed Shimano Claris on, which didn't really help with the hills that much. In addition to maybe 15 kilos worth of kit. So you're just plodding up these hills, but just the, the, the views were absolutely outstanding. Um, and I then had another crash. Um, so there was on one of these windy roads. I was I was caught glancing out over, over the side. I accidentally crossed onto the wrong side of the road, and I hit front on front with a motorbike. Um, thank thankfully it was slightly offset, so I didn't you know break anything. I think the wheel was maybe slightly out of true, but besides like putting the handlebars back, and I've you know got like scar on my thumb like it was that was fine but definitely shook me up a little bit um, and then went went down vietnam um i my friends were joining me um halfway down and so i then realized that to to get there on time i had to cycle 270 kilometers in one day which was the furthest that i had cycled in a day um and it, it, it was hot. It was it was it was getting hot. Um, but again, same with every other day. You just get up a little, little bit earlier, plod on, take a little bit more supplies, um, and I managed to meet them in the airport, which was really good. Um, but at this time, so this this would have been kind of uh, start of February. Coronavirus was coming a bit more of a thing. Oh yeah, okay. So this is the start of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. And you met your friends, and where were you going with them? Um, well, actually, the coronavirus thing started when I got into Vietnam. So this would have been the first week of January. So that's when it kind of broke, when the news broke that it was in China. Um, and I remember at this point, I was maybe a couple of kilometers away from the Chinese border. And I was seriously close to China. So there was always a you know worry from back home, like, oh, you know, you're in Vietnam, that's right next to China. You know, it could very, very easily spread there because there was so much unknown about it. Um and there was there was Chinese New Year, which you know, spending Chinese New Year in a country that celebrates Chinese New Year is incredible. Um I also lucked out and I spent Diwali um in India, which was again amazing. Yeah, amazing experience. Um, and things were starting to get a little bit more serious when you always saw hand sanitizer everywhere. So kind of in all the hotels, all the um restaurants, they had hand sanitizer. And so as I was going down Vietnam, there were a couple more cases, but it wasn't that bad. Um I as, as I left Vietnam, it was getting a little bit more serious. This would have been at some point in February. Um, 
two days after I left Vietnam, they closed their borders. So I'd, I'd entered Cambodia um, and then I kind of, um, I, I, I went to a lot of the, the sites where the Pol Pot regime and genocides happened in Cambodia, um, which you know, if you haven't read up on it or haven't been to, um, I had no real clue of what it was, but um, they were saying there was remarkably a lot less tourists. And in the hostels that I was staying at, people were talking about abandoning their traveling and flying home. This one was starting to get a bit more serious, but it it never really entered my mind that I would um, abandon it and fly home. Um, so going across Cambodia, it was it was hot. It was very very flat, but it was getting up to 40 degrees during the day, and settling on about 30 degrees at night. So, um, you know, that's, I spent that's tough going in big days as well, isn't it? That's really sapping. Yeah, it's it, it's it just yeah just saps the energy. Um, and then as I got out of Cambodia into Thailand, the plan was to fly from Bangkok to Perth. Um, and then kind of Cambodia went into lockdown. Thailand was talking about going into lockdown. Um, I managed to rush into Bangkok, get a flight to Perth. Um, and a day or two after I landed in Australia, they closed the border to uh, non-residents. Okay, yeah. Um, and all people who were residents still had to quarantine when they flew in. Um, so I was in Perth to do the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, um, which is the race from Perth to Sydney. So that's a solo, unsupported bikepacking race, essentially. So it's five and a half thousand kilometres. Um, the clock starts and it doesn't stop. So the plan was fantastic. I'm in Australia. If they close the borders, that's fine. I'm in the country. Like, you know, they can't yeah. get me out. Um, so I start the race on 21st of March, I think it was. Um, that, again, like woefully unprepared. There were people who had proper training plans, tapering weeks. They had all the gear, deep section aero wheels, they had um, titanium bikes, aero bars, all this stuff. And I was just there. On your 61 uh, frame from Myanmar. Yeah, yeah, pretty <laughs> much. And I, so I, I was really, really bad at bike maintenance. I didn't clean my chain enough. Um, there were points in my brake pads had run out and I was just going off the plastic pretty much. Um, and that meant that the brake track on my front wheel, the guy in the bike shop said, yeah, a couple more hard brakes um, and that will cease to exist. So um, I had to have a there, isn't it? Yeah, look after your kit. Um, so, but like the guy was so nice. Um, he gave me a secondhand front wheel that was actually a, a Mavic Cosmic carbon fiber, you know, quote unquote aero wheel, which, you know, was really the only aero thing on my bike besides having bike packing bags. Um, and so we set off at 6.22 a.m. Um, and that time is relevant because that's the time in which Michael passed away when he was doing the race. 
Um, so we set off from Fremantle in the hope of doing five and a half thousand kilometers to the Sydney Opera House. Um, lunchtime on day, also on, on, on day one, I did something like 320 kilometers into a raging headwind. Um, so set, set self at six, um, I stopped about 9 p.m. and slept for far too long. Um, I kind of thought I'll go tortoise rather than hare and, you know, keep decent night's sleep, um, whereas some people were sleeping for an hour, two hours a night. But I thought, well, I've been doing this for nine months. I'll just keep plodding along and play the long game. Um, at lunchtime on day two, um, I see someone in this town who's part of the race and they says, oh, it's gutting about the news. And I thought, oh, what news? I, I bought an Australian SIM, but it hadn't, it hadn't um, been enabled properly. So I had no internet and I didn't have any, there was nowhere that had Wi-Fi on the first day that I stopped by because I, and I was in a rush. So I, I, I didn't have any internet from the second that I left the guy's house I was staying at that morning until I spoke to this guy and he said, oh, they're closing the state borders in Australia. So unless you can get to the border with South Australia in the next X many hours, you know, you, you can't enter the state. And so there were a couple of us in this town. So we decided, okay, well, let's spend the night here. We'll get a hotel um, and you know, we'll sort things out in the morning. So I kind of uh, ring my parents or text them and let them know, oh, mum, dad, you know, the, the race is over. Um, we can't go into Southern Australia. So th th this was Sunday afternoon. I was like, oh, can you book me a flight maybe later in the week back home? Um, because, you know, I've, I'm 500 kilometers away from Perth. I don't really yeah. fancy racing home. So I go to sleep. Um, I wake up to a barrage of missed calls, a barrage of texts, Facebook notifications, like every method of communication, like my phone must have been buzzing, but <laughs> I didn't have any Wi-Fi or anything. Um, but the guy that I was staying with, he was Australian, so he had been asked, like, oh, are you staying with Jacob? He needs to pick up his phone so I then go to the um hotel where, where like the hotel next door where we had breakfast or where we had dinner um and essentially my parents said Jacob your flight is 10 p.m tonight from Perth it is the last flight out of Australia oh wow so every single airport hub was closing so Bangkok had closed Singapore had closed um they were all just closing and i was on the last flight which went via um dubai i think it it, it could have been um and it was closing the day after like my flight was transferring through so i sat there you know kind of tired 500 kilometers away from perth thinking i've got to somehow do 500 kilometers in about 14 hours um so i I, I cycled the hundred or so kilometers. I mean, it sounds trivial now, but yeah, just 
cycled the 100k back to the next serious town where there was a train station hopped on a train back back to perth i still the guy i stayed with still had my bike box so packed it all up in there dropped me off at the airport um and then it was only when i was sat at the gate waiting to board the flight that it suddenly hit me that i was going home yeah because you know i was in race mode and then i was in okay let's look at this pragmatically let's get home mode and it was only then when i was sat down that it really hit me that yeah this is over um i'm i'm going home um so boarded the flight um wearing masks the entire time and i thought oh yeah like this is it it was it was it was, it was quite tough and then i land at heathrow um and like boris so i landed on the tuesday um when boris had the big call uh, the big press conference on the monday bringing in to force the lockdown um and kind of the unofficial quarantining so my parents came to heathrow luckily we live quite close to heathrow so they came in two cars um and they left the car keys in one car and then they they were in the other car and so i couldn't hug them i couldn't get close to them i put my bike in the back of the car i drove myself back to my parents house you know i hadn't driven in months and suddenly i was straight on a motorway driving home around the m25 lovely yeah yeah i mean it's lucky that australia um well, the last two countries that I were in, well, that I was in was Thailand and Australia, and both those are driving on the left. So at least I had some kind of acclimatization to being on the left-hand side of the road. Um, and my parents had set up a ladder going to my bedroom window. <laughs> so I have a, I'm lucky enough to have a, an ensuite um, at my bedroom in my parents' house. So for the next two weeks, um, my brother had brought in his PlayStation and a TV into the, my bedroom. So the next two weeks I was in my bed, locked in my bedroom with a ladder to go outside to go for bike rides. Um, Cause we kind of thought, you know, if, if you're going to do quarantine properly, you may as well do it properly. So that was, it was in, in hindsight, it was a really good acclimatization to being back a in the Western world and B integrating with people because you've spent months by yourself seeing people at a hostel sometimes um being you know, by yourself and then i was you know a phased return of having lunch with, with my parents outside on the patio to being back isolated in my bedroom by myself playing yeah. playstation watching tv so that was two weeks of kind of yeah reintegration i imagine it's almost similar to what an astronaut has to go through when he comes back from space you know, you can't go straight back into normal life, but let your body recover, yeah. customised to um, gravity and things. So, so you got, so yeah. got back to the UK and then you're isolating so, at home and that's kind of it. That's that's where that whole year, year was it, year and a half? So from when I left, it was nine months. Um, but yeah, in the back of my mind, I thought, 
mm, okay how bad is coronavirus like can i fly back out or can i go somewhere else um but within kind of two or three weeks you know after a pragmatic look at things it wasn't going to go away quickly um you know like there was you know you got loads of debate about the covid response from different countries but you can you could just tell that it wasn't going to be a two-week quarantine and then back to normal so i made the decision to kind of yeah draw a line under the trip reintegrate with normal life get a job move back to cardiff um and i think once you eliminate all the options of what I could do, when I was faced with that being the only option, you kind of get used to it and you kind of accept it because you know that your hands are tight. That's all you can go with. You know, you're not reminiscing about what could have been because you're not allowed to. I wasn't allowed back into Australia. I couldn't fly anywhere. There was travel bans. So, I mean... That is just one amazing story, and I think there's lots of inspiration that you know the members and everyone listening to this will take from that experience. What's your, what would be your sort of top, top two? I don't know, just thoughts for everyone to think about, or just from that whole experience. Um, you never know if you don't try. You know it could so easily have been the case that I tried it for a f- two or three weeks. I, you know, I got down to Italy or somewhere like that. And I said, you know what? I'm not really enjoying this. I'm going to go home. Um, I had on day two or three, I had a horrific day where, so this was the summer where there was a really bad heat wave across Europe. I was cycling five kilometers at a time stopping to you know just cool down a little bit before getting to the hostel like it was just the worst the worst day i had all the shops were closed i had no food no water it could have so easily quit but then you know you give yourself enough time to see if you actually enjoy something and you know if you don't start it then you never really know how it's going to be Um, that's a really good message yeah yeah and um so one of the ones which um, got told, well, yeah, one of the ones that got, you know, someone told me was the home mile is the hardest, which is essentially saying that the first mile from your front doorstep is the hardest one. Um, I think that's with everything, you know, starting is the hard part. Um, you know, you could argue getting to the start line was a hard part of my trip, despite how little preparation I did for it. But making the decision to go, getting everything and starting, and then the rest after that is easy. Um, amazing. It's, it is amazing what your body can do if you just plod on. You know, I, I, I wasn't going especially fast. I wasn't going especially, you know, I didn't set any KOMs up Stelvio when I did it. Um, but you just... You just keep on plodding. Um, it's it's just amazing what the body can do. And it sounds like you know it's amazing what's out there in the world and what's there to be discovered. Yeah, I I, I think there, there there truly is more to life than the Brecon beacons. Like there is so much out there, and I would encourage anyone to, you know, 
go to the Brecon Beacons, go to Snowdon, go to anywhere in the UK, experience what that has to offer because it's, you know, it's going to be a big step up from what you can encounter in and around Cardiff. Yeah. And then think to yourself, okay, well, what if I go a little bit further? What if I go across to the Alps and I spend a week in the Alps? And then what if I go a little bit further and I go to Montenegro? What if I go a little bit further? And well, life is richer for more experiences, both good and bad. Amazing. Um, you know, there were some really, really challenging times. They weren't bad because I don't think anything is bad per se. It was just challenging. Um, and it does toughen you up a little bit because just like a balloon, once you expand it, you know, it can then take up a bigger space than it could previously. Mm. You know, if you challenge yourself, you push yourself to a little, just a little bit further, suddenly stuff that you've done previously or stuff that you thought was hard isn't quite as hard as you thought it was. I mean, it's been really inspirational listening to you and I think there's some really um, telling that amazing story and thanks for sharing that amazing story. I think your key messages there are, are really important. I think to all the members to just get out there and explore and um, if you're happy, I'll, I'll share your contact details if anyone wants to get in touch. I just want to say a big thank you, Jacob, for coming on to share his amazing story. Um, some real inspiration taken there, and hopefully everyone's enjoyed this episode. Again, if you want to come on, have a discussion, or you've got something to share with the membership and you want to be part of this podcast series, please just drop David Medhurst a message or myself, which is Toby Nichols, and the email address is twnichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, 100 at gmail.com. Thanks all. Look forward to the next episode. <laughs>